0: The National Archives podcast series, How to Research a Famous Person in the National Archives, presented by Mark Dunton as part of our Writer of the Month series of talks. How to Research a Famous Political Figure in the National Archives, um, concentrating on Margaret Thatcher as a case study. Margaret Thatcher, you can love her, you can hate her, but you can't ignore the impact that she made on modern Britain. Simon Jenkins has called her Britain's most famous Prime Minister since Churchill. She was a highly controversial figure. Mention her name, and some people over a certain age still voice strong antipathy. To others, she was the saviour of Britain. It's fair to say that over 11 years, she transformed British society and the political scene. She was a game-changer. As Andrew Marr put it in his History of Modern Britain, we are all, whether we like it or not, Thatcher's children. We thought that such a notable figure would make an excellent case study to show you how to research a famous political figure in the National Archives. So, I'll get underway with that. In terms of preparation... Before coming to the National Archives, I can't emphasise enough just how important it is to carry out thorough reading of secondary works, published books and articles. I know this may seem a pretty obvious point, and I'm sure you're all aware of it, but I just felt duty-bound to mention it early on. The National Archives holds the raw materials of history and the records we hold can be incredibly interesting and exciting, as I'm sure many of you know. But you'd be doing yourself no favours if you just plunge straight into them, because there's a real danger of feeling overwhelmed by the sheer range of material, the sheer volume of it, the sheer range of choices could feel daunting. I thought I'd mention this because we often get uh, inquiries from students (coughs) Sometimes by email, sometimes they've just come straight here to queue. Um, Students who are embarking on their dissertations, and in many cases, they appear to have done little in the way of background reading. So they struggle when they arrive here to get a grip on what their research strategy should be sometimes they can seem uncertain, not all students, but some of them can seem uncertain about what aspect of the subject do they really want to concentrate on and they may struggle to put date parameters onto their subject. So background reading uh, helps you to map out the subject and gives historical context and in a very practical way books can help you shortcut the challenge of amassing National Archives document references because If an author has used TNA sources, then invariably they would cite the precise document references in footnotes or appendices. Of course, you don't want to just tread the same ground as a particular historian. Um, You'd want to find some uncharted territory of your own in the records, and there's a good chance you will. But it's just useful to see what sources others have used, and so you can benefit from that sort of signposting that they've done. To quote from the sound of music, um, we'll start at the very beginning. That's a very good place to start. I won't be singing now, but uh, (laughs) this does mean, unfortunately, but this does mean that we get immediately, in fact, into the territory of what we don't have in the National Archives. Margaret Thatcher's birth certificate. Birth, marriage and death certificates from 1837 to the present, as many of you will know, are held by the General Register Office. Um, and there are several websites that you can use which have digitized the indexes to those certificates. These include Ancestry, Find My Past and Free BMD. And from those sites you can obtain the reference to the certificate and then you can order the certificates from the General Register Office. And I found this to be a straightforward and efficient process to do it online. So, back to the narrative. So, um, Yeah, Margaret Hilda Roberts was born on the 13th of October 1925, um, and she was the younger of two daughters of Alfred and Beatrice Roberts, who were shop owners. And uh, you can see the address, One North Parade, Grantham. And Margaret Hilda Roberts was born over the shop. It was a general store and post office, Situated in Grantham, but actually on the edge of town. Alfred Roberts' corner shop has become the stuff of legends and myths. Myths that biographers such as John Campbell have challenged and unravelled to some extent. Now I don't intend to get into all the fine details of that here, but I think it is fair to say that Margaret Thatcher's account of her childhood is highly selective and a certain gloss has been put on it. But it is very significant to her later political personality. Now, Margaret had a strict Methodist upbringing. She was expected to attend church three times on a Sunday. The general consensus among biographers is that her home was a contented one, but it was also a rather joyless and very serious-minded life that the Roberts led. Alfred had a career in local politics. He was first elected councillor as an independent, and he had liberal sympathies. But later on, he became conservative supporting. He was elected alderman in 1943 and served a term as mayor in 1945 to 46. In 1952, his political career ended when he was displaced from the council. Alfred had a huge impact on Margaret. She was very much his daughter. As Hugo Young has written, He brought Margaret up in his own image. He imbued her with a strong sense of social duty and responsibility. There was a lot of emphasis on Christian duty to one's neighbour and good works to help the less fortunate. One can see where her strong work ethic came from and how her interest in public affairs developed. I'm going to skip forward now Margaret Thatcher was won a place to study chemistry at Somerville College in Oxford in 1943. There she joined Oxford University Conservative Association, the OUCA, and after attending her first party conference in Blackpool in 1946, which she thoroughly enjoyed, she became the OUCA president. Margaret started to rub shoulders with the great and the good in the Conservative Party and met those from the other side of the political divide, such as Tony Benn. Drawing on interviews with Thatcher's contemporaries, John Campbell, referring to her Oxford days, states, so far as anyone remembers, her views were entirely conventional at this time. She graduated in 1947 as a qualified research chemist, As Simon Jenkins puts it, the tale of Thatcher's political evolution after Oxford goes cold. There is relatively little in her memoirs for the period before she joins the House of Commons. Thatcher made her first attempt to enter Parliament in the Dartford seat in the 1950 general election, but she did not succeed, and she lost again in 1951. Soon after the second contest, she married a divorced businessman, Dennis Thatcher, and gave birth to twins, Mark and Carol, in August 1953. Thatcher juggled career and family, studying law and qualifying as a barrister, but she remained devoted to politics and won the seat of Finchley in North London in the 1959 general election. Mrs Thatcher became a junior minister at the Ministry of Pensions and National Insurance, the MPNI, in October 1961, joining Macmillan's government, and she was to stay there for three years. Thatcher threw herself into mastering the complex details of the social security system. It may not have been the most glamorous or prestigious role, but through it, Thatcher learnt a great deal about how government operates. To quote John Campbell, the MPNI was not a department where a minister, certainly not a junior minister, had large executive decisions to make, rather a mass of tiny decisions investigating grievances and correcting anomalies across the whole range of benefits and human circumstances. For anyone researching the life of Margaret Thatcher, her arrival at the MPNI in 1961 is effectively the moment when they should start to consider the holdings of the National Archives. Now I'm going to break off from the narrative of Margaret Thatcher's political career to just address the research angle a bit. To borrow a phrase from John Major, let's go back to basics. Who are we? The National Archives is the official archive for England, Wales, and the central UK government. And we hold records from the running of government and the chief courts of law. Our records range from the Doomsday Book of 1086 to the early 1980s and beyond that in some cases. And the statistics are staggering. 10 million documents on 100 miles or so of shelving, reflecting 1,000 years of history. The records range from parchment and paper scrolls, they come in all shapes and sizes, and they go through to recently created digital files and archived websites. Not all records survive. They are selected according to strict criteria. Records of significant events records of policy decisions, records that show the state's interaction with the lives of its citizens. And that last point is highly significant if you're attempting to carry out research on an individual at the National Archives. And this applies to any ordinary individual, not just a famous person. You have to ask yourself three key questions. Number one, when did this person come into contact with the machinery of government or the state. Then you have to ask, is a record likely to have been generated by this interaction between the state and the individual? A good example of this would be the census returns uh, from 1841 to 1911. And then you have to ask yourself a third question, is a record of this likely to survive? Now the answer to that last question is less obvious. But this is where our inquiry services, run by Advice and Records Knowledge Department here, this is where these services come in. We can advise you about the likelihood of finding the information you are seeking at the National Archives in person at our inquiry desks, by phone, by email, and increasingly our online chat service, which we are looking to expand. But you can scope our holdings to some extent by using Discovery, our new catalogue. If you're researching a famous political figure in the National Archives, you might well be tempted to think, well, I'll just search under Margaret Thatcher and that'll be that. But it's not as simple as that. Of course, you can try that sort of search and you'll get some hits, but that search won't give you the full story by any means. Now, I'm gonna make a massive generalization now. The records we hold are not primarily arranged around individuals. Now there are some notable and sizeable exceptions to that, such as the special operations executive personnel files in the series HS9 that uh, Ben McIntyre has made such brilliant use of. But taking our holdings in the round, the great majority of our records are arranged by government departments and the functions of those departments, rather than being arranged by individuals. So you often have to think in those terms... If you were to do a simple search and if you were to type in uh, Ministry of Pensions and National Insurance, you would get a staggering 5,745 results. Just too much. But if you carry out an advanced search using the exact phrase, so if you use the exact word or phrase Ministry of Pensions and National Insurance and then put in a date range of 1961 to 1964 to reflect Margaret Thatcher's tenure and then if you were to click on the uh, search you would get 340 results as you can see therefore there are many administrative files for the MPNI for the period when Mrs Thatcher was junior minister there and no doubt you would you could find some examples of her handiwork in those files but i doubt that you would find anything as entertaining as what follows next. Mrs. Thatcher's self-confidence in House of Commons debates was apparent early on, but it may surprise you to learn just how teasing, even flirtatious, she could be. Here is an extract from a House of Commons debate on the Family Allowances and National Insurance Bill held on the 22nd of January 1964. Mrs. Thatcher responds to criticism that some of the figures that she had given were out of date by saying, "I really have got a red-hot figure. This is just <laughs> here. OK? <coughs> Honorable members, here, here. <laughs> Much laughter. Mrs. Thatcher comes back with, "I am very glad I am not wearing a red dress today." To continue, I have a bang-up-to-the-minute figure, and it is 110 million, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. She, I think, is using her feminim- femininity I can't say the word in the male-dominated House of Commons in a very knowing way here to reinforce her argument. And I think there's something rather endearing, rather charming about the way that she does it. Also, in 1964, members of Parliament were, u- were asked to fill in and return a questionnaire about remuneration, their expenses. Uh, in February or March of that year. And this is uh, Margaret Thatcher's completed form, one of the earliest examples we hold of her handwriting. And she expresses her opinions with characteristic confidence. Um, She is being asked here, what in your view should be the purpose of remuneration paid to you in the virtue of your membership of the House of Commons? Should it be regarded as being a sort of full-time or part-time service? And she writes, um, membership of the House of Commons should be a part-time occupation. The strength of the House lies in the varied experiences of its members. In every debate, there are always some members whose contributions are based on their own specialist knowledge. and, And so forth. So, you know, she's giving her opinions in her usual kind of forthright way. If this were not so... The House would be unable to evaluate the very the many uh, I can't read that word representations. Representations, thank you, made to it by individuals and pressure groups. So, of course, thank you for that. Uh, members MPs' expenses is a long-running issue in British politics, and I'll be returning to that theme later. In October 1964, the Conservatives lost power, and Mrs. Thatcher was depressed by this defeat but she applied herself thoroughly in opposition. She held six portfolios between 1964 and 1970, three as junior spokeswoman on pensions, housing and economic policy, and three shadow cabinet portfolios on power, transport and lastly, education. Here again, we're in the territory of what you won't find here at the National Archives. We'd never claim that we had everything, to research these years of opposition, you'd be probably best advised to explore the Conservative Party archive held by Oxford University and located in the Bodleian Library. When the Conservatives won the 1970 general election, Edward Heath appointed Mrs Thatcher Secretary of State for Education. And now, inevitably, we come on to the subject of milk, which... <laughs> yes. Uh, We will see this was actually a recurring theme in her career. Because Mrs Thatcher famously abolished free milk in primary schools for children aged 7 to 11, she was dubbed Margaret Thatcher Milk Snatcher. But, as several contemporary historians have pointed out, this was unfair. The previous Labour government had already stopped the supply to secondary schools without an outcry, Free milk in primary schools did go back to the School Milk Act of 1946, passed during the sort of um, post-wartime austerity period to guarantee supplies, but now there were renewed financial pressures on government. In any case, milk would still be provided free for children prescribed it on medical grounds. But despite these qualifiers, Mrs. Thatcher was vilified in a highly personal way for this policy. And... The fact that while she was Education Secretary, she, she saved the Open University from closure, that fact has been largely overlooked. But for the researcher, National Archive sources in the form of Department of Education ED files now would come into play. Continuing the narrative, um, Edward Heath lost the general election in February 1974, and Thatcher again found herself in opposition. Heath lost another general election in October 1974, but stubbornly stayed on as leader. After potential alternative leaders such as um, Keith Joseph ruled themselves out from challenging Heath, Thatcher decided to run for leader, and on the second ballot on the 11th of February 1975, she won a convincing victory, causing a political sensation. So now Margaret Thatcher was leader of the opposition. Now, Norman Tebbit referred to the years of opposition between 1975 and 1979 as Thatcher's Long March. It's got sort of revolutionary overtones to it, doesn't it? But um, there was a great deal of rethinking going on in these years, as did the whole approach of the Conservative Party to the economy, free market ideas, the intellectual development of monetarism, ways of reducing the role of the state, etc., And Mrs Thatcher repackaged herself with Gordon Reese's help. She worked on changing her voice and her her hair and stopped wearing hats. Uh, She portrayed herself as an ordinary housewife and she made many powerful outspoken speeches and was dubbed the Iron Lady by the Soviet Union. But all the hard work paid off on the 3rd of May 1979 when Thatcher led the Conservatives to victory in a general election regarded as a watershed in British political history. And this is the point at which any researcher would really need to get fully immersed in the world of archives. Just how do you find out about the whereabouts of personal papers of a famous political figure such as Margaret Thatcher? Well, a great way to do this is to use the National Register of Archives on our website, which is maintained by my colleagues in archives sector development. And you could carry out a simple word search. It's not complicated to use. You you could just simply put in, type in simple name search, Margaret Thatcher there, click on search, and this would bring up several references to the Churchill Archive Centre at Cambridge University, which is where you'll find Margaret Thatcher's private papers. The Churchill Archive Centre and the Margaret Thatcher Archive Trust have begun to digitise all of Margaret Thatcher's personal and political papers from her early years right up to the end of her premiership. These documents will be placed online on the official website of the Margaret Thatcher Foundation, which incidentally is a great resource because here you can find not only digitised documents but texts of just about every public speech, broadcast, TV interview that Margaret Thatcher ever gave. And the Margaret Thatcher Foundation website states Margaret Thatcher opened her private archive in 2003 and that, that she was the first former Prime Minister to, do, to have done this during their lifetime. A selection of the best papers are available online at this site, while the original documents, as I've mentioned, are deposited at Churchill College, Cambridge. Her official papers as Prime Minister, the most important of all of her files, are stored separately at the National Archives in Kew, and they're going online on this site in their entirety. They're also going on our site as well. And this is the main point of significance um, about the National Archives. We hold the official papers of Mrs Thatcher as Prime Minister, and they are in the series that we have called PREM, P-R-E-M, Prime Minister's Office, PREM-19, Records of the Prime Minister's Office, Correspondence and Papers, 1979 onwards. So PREM-19 is actually part of a set of special series for Prime Minister's correspondence and papers which for the post-war period also comprise all the other series that you can see here you know prem 8 11 13 15 16 and most most of these records uh, in those in those series are available to consult as original documents Um, all of the Prem 19 files for 1979 and 1980, all of those files for those years have been digitised and they've been put on the Thatcher Foundation website and on our website via Discovery, 1981 to follow, um, perhaps in the next six months, a bit hard to say at the moment. Um, the, great thing to, the great thing is that these digitised files have optical character recognition, so you can actually search within these documents for keywords, I think using control F, you know, the find function. So what do these records reveal? Well, the Prem 19 records are of great interest to students of contemporary history, indeed anyone with a general interest in the history of modern Britain. I mean, here you can read about the topics which dominated the business of government and see the stories unfold, and as they occurred at the time, in great detail. So the records of the Prime Minister show the huge range of matters ...where the Prime Minister takes an interest... ...including, for example, the civil service... ...the Commonwealth, defence, economic policy... ...foreign policy, home affairs, industrial policy... ...National Health Service, trade, transport and many more... ...reflecting a virtual A to Z of governmental activity. The arrangement of these records is straightforward. Um, they're generally arranged in an alphabetical subject order just like that list suggests that i've just given you as with many national archives documents the file titles are general and brief in nature so you need to keep it simple when searching on discovery so depending on your subject use um keywords or phrases like economy budget transport you know keep it relatively simple and general and that way you'll have the most success But um, these Prem-19 documents are incredibly interesting because they often contain um, annotations, notes in the margin, written by the Prime Minister themselves, and they can be very revealing, as I hope to show you in the following examples. And for the first example from Margaret Thatcher, we're back to the subject of milk. (laughs) A one and a half pence per pint increase in the retail price of milk is proposed by Peter Walker, Minister of Agriculture and Fisheries, in a letter to to Chancellor Geoffrey Howe. This is around 1979, I think. And Walker states that he will be looking into the current system of milk pricing and, and subsidies and making further proposals. And this prompts the following handwritten comments by Mrs Thatcher. She writes, I do not believe that such a large increase is possible politically. One and a half p is a great addition to the housewives' budget. Moreover, uh, there is the other political point I abolished f- school milk in schools, which is written there. So she's well aware of the potential consequences of all of this. Discussions continued, considering whether government should actually be involved in regulating milk prices at all. I think I'm not sure where the file gets to on that point. There's an awful lot of I think there's quite a lot of pages on it. Moving on, it's known that Mrs. Thatcher liked to tell it like it is, but sometimes the comments she writes can be rather shocking in their brutal honesty as evidenced by her scornful comments here about Chancellor Geoffrey Howe's paper on pay policy for the public services, 25th of May, 1979. She's writing to Tim, Tim Lancaster, I think he's one of her private secretaries. Tim, this is a very poor paper, and we can only charitably assume that the Treasury is otherwise occupied at the present. (laughs) Poor Geoffrey. Uh, And uh, these, as you see, these comments are just amazing. uh, These notes in the margin, they are invariably written in blue felt-tip pen. And I've got used to deciphering her hand, but it can be tricky sometimes. And uh, occasionally a whole team of us have had to pool our efforts to make full sense of them. Now, when Mrs Thatcher came to power in May 1979, she was determined to reduce the size and the cost of the civil service. And Prem 19 stroke 5 is a file entitled Freeze on Civil Service Manpower, Action to Reduce Civil Service Numbers and Staff Costs. And on a draft paper for the Cabinet by the Lord President, Christopher Soames, we see comments by Mrs Thatcher written in the margins, made by her own hand. And these comments are certainly very direct. Um, When Lord Soames, he actually suggests Around about here, he suggests some uh, uh, ex- some minor exceptions to the ban on recruitment in the civil service. Mrs. Thatcher simply <laughs> and emphatically writes no. Um, when he suggests a reduction of um, civil service, he wants to sort of keep the reduction of civil service staff costs to about three percent. She writes too small, five percent. So. And we can see from studying the documents that Mrs. Thatcher frequently underlined particular sentences or phrases which she found significant in the memos, evidence of intense concentration on the details of the subject in hand. I was pleased to see that Meryl Streep, playing Mrs. Thatcher in the film The Iron Lady, was shown at one point underlining phrases in a memo with a blue felt-tip pen. Now, the drive for economies... Um, continued in the year 1980, and the file Prem19 Stroke 165 on economic policy includes papers discussing the need for further reductions in public expenditure. There had been several difficult cabinet meetings uh, concerning public spending cuts in 1980, uh, with certain ministers arguing that the cuts had already gone far enough in their own departments. Here we see PM Thatcher's stark statement written in pencil in a spontaneous way across an otherwise blank piece of paper. We have got to get economies. And the word got is underlined uh, three times there. Um, And it's a strong indicator of her drive and determination in implementing this strategy. It's clear from the documents that Mrs Thatcher is passionate about her mission to bring about change on several fronts. And this passion reveals itself in forthright and angry handwritten comments. Sometimes her anger is directed at other parts of government as we see her frustration at the obstacles that she perceives to be in the way of her policies. An example which illustrates this is in this file, Prem 19223, on European policy. The background was as follows. In 1979 and 1980, Mrs Thatcher took a tough stance in negotiating a reduction in Britain's net contribution to the European Community Budget. When the Foreign and Commonwealth Office produced a statement on North Sea Oil and the EC Budget, she writes, that statement would be disastrous for Britain and I'm not prepared to make it. The idea that we should have to sacrifice our main assets to secure some of our own money back is one that may appeal to the Foreign Office, but it does not to me. (laughs) Wouldn't it have been courteous to say the least, to have come to me first? You can really feel the anger. And on the same theme, Mrs Thatcher's ministers had negotiated a refund of Britain's net contribution to the European Community Budget in late May, May 1980. And this file shows Mrs Thatcher's angry reaction when the basis of the settlement appeared to be in doubt. Mrs Thatcher comments, no, the procedure is ridiculous. Its whole purpose is to demean Britain. And she writes, we must fight this one, if necessary, openly. It's almost Churchillian sort of language that she's using there, very, very strident. What do we learn about Mrs Thatcher's values from studying the PREM files? In one PREM file, shown here, we learn that Following a parliamentary written question about the costs of refurbishing accommodation for ministers, a breakdown of spend for each of the government departments was published without (coughs) consulting the Prime Minister's office. And an official in Thatcher's office appears sceptical of the figures, the, the, the actual alleged costs for refurbishing number 10, including the flat above number 10, where she, Margaret Thatcher, lived with Dennis. Um, So, the official's written here. I find these figures impossible to believe. Um, Mrs Thatcher, here. So do I. Um, I could use my own crockery. That's her first... (laughs) (laughs) It's great. Um, and, And then Thatcher notes down here somewhere, down the bottom right. We only use one bedroom... And she can use her own crockery and the price of an ironing board, a new ironing board, prompts her to repeatedly state, I will pay for the ironing board. And that's something that she actually repeats about three times in the file that she'll do that. Um, The press loved it when this was released. You may remember they had some headlines like um, Ironing Lady. (laughs) We knew it was going to happen. But um, it is interesting because there's an almost obsessive conscientiousness at work here on a a serious note it's a powerful illustration of Margaret Thatcher's values which are rooted in her strict upbringing mentioned earlier, an emphasis on personal responsibility, thrift self-reliance and an instinctive antipathy towards unnecessary expenditure of taxpayers money (coughs) this approach didn't just stop at home it was an essential part of her government strategy in the early 80s we saw it again actually in the recently released files from 1982 uh, when uh, there was the, the file about uh, Mark Thatcher being lost in the Saharan Desert for six days when he took part in a, a car rally uh, and there was a big operation to find Mark Thatcher in the Saharan Desert. And there were a certain amount of costs um, incurred by the Foreign and Commonwealth Office and uh, they totaled all these costs up because you know, questions were being asked in Parliament about the, the cost to taxpayers. And Mrs. Satcher has written in that file, I will pay the £1,191. We can therefore say that no extra charge has been placed on the taxpayer. To who do I write out the cheque? You know, and, uh, and the answer was the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. Although even when she paid that, they then came back to her ...for another £15. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, they really are exacting, And uh, that was presumably for, what, postage stamps and phone calls or something. And she duly paid that as well, I believe, you know. Mrs Thatcher was the first elected female leader in the Western world. And she was determined to be treated as an equal... ...in a male-dominated world of political summits. And this becomes very clear from an episode in 1979... um, This uh, file, uh, which you see an extract from here, includes reactions to a Japanese report. Uh, So this this is the Tokyo Economic Summit that Mrs. Thatcher is attending. There's a Japanese report that 20 karate ladies would (laughs) attend her as sort of personal bodyguards. It's an interesting image. Um, (laughs) Sir John Hunt, the Cabinet Secretary, makes it clear that Mrs Thatcher would not want any special treatment. And um, just to quote the last four lines here, Sir John said that Mrs Thatcher will attend the summit as a Prime Minister and not as a woman per se, and he was sure that she she would not want these ladies. Press reaction in particular would be unacceptable. He asked about action to (coughs) be taken. Yeah, in the end, they they made it very clear that, you know, thank you for the offer, but no, uh, Mrs. Satchel does not require these karate ladies. Uh, uh, She, I think her view was very much, you know, uh, well, if the other heads of state who are, you know, going to be largely male, you know, if they're not getting special bodyguards, why, you know, I don't want them either. She very much wanted to be treated as an equal. And now... Bang up to date from the latest releases from the 30 year, under the 30-year rule from the year 1982, the year dominated by the Falklands conflict. This is an extract from Mrs Thatcher's oral evidence to the Franks Inquiry, which looked into the Argentine invasion of the Falklands. And this was given behind closed doors on the 25th of October 1982, and it was released together with thousands of other files late last December. This received a great deal of media attention because of the powerful and dramatic nature of Mrs Thatcher's testimony. She says here, I just say it was the worst, I think, moment of my life. And she's referring to the moment when, on the 31st of March 1982, she received the raw intelligence reports that an Argentine invasion of the Falklands was imminent. And here is another extract from that evidence to the Franks' inquiry I never, never expected the Argentines to invade the Falklands head-on. It was such a stupid thing to do, as events happened. Such a stupid thing, even to contemplate doing. Again, it's powerful stuff. It's the repetitions of particular words that I think are so telling. There's a huge amount of feeling being expressed. And this is the authentic voice of Margaret Thatcher, and it virtually leaps from the pages. You may have noticed that the last document had a CAB, a Cabinet Office, prefix to its reference. And this prompts me to point out that another great resource that we have is this, the Cabinet Papers website, the Cabinet Minutes and Memoranda, the uh, the memoranda are the papers (laughs) circulated to ministers for discussion. These have been digitised, these records, from 1915, which are the very earliest papers, to 1982. And you can download them from this site on our website, for free, even if you're at home. And because the content has been given the optical character recognition, the OCR treatment, you can search the actual content of documents and hone right in on specific information. So it's a brilliant resource for anyone researching the Cabinet contributions of a Prime Minister, or indeed any Cabinet Minister. I mentioned the 30-year rule earlier, now, the transfer of records from government departments to the National Archives is at present governed by the 30 year rule under the Public Records Act of 1958. Under the Freedom of Information Act 2000, uh, certainly for the majority of records, it's the case that when a record becomes 30 years old and is classed as an historical record, it will become open and available to consult unless any FOI, Freedom of Information, exemptions apply. So in late 2012, Prime Minister's Office and Cabinet Papers records for 1982 were transferred here and made available for public consultation. So 1982 is currently the upper limit for our holdings on Thatcher's first Premiership. There is some material here dated later than that year, but not much in terms of core executive material beyond 1982. The exciting news is that the 30-year rule will be reduced to 20 years. This change is being phased in gradually, a process that begins this year. Government departments and organisations across the UK are currently preparing selected records for 1983 and 1984 for transfer to the National Archives during 2013. And for the next 10 years, we will receive two years' worth of releases from the government departments so 2013 83 and 84 in the year 2014 1985 and 1986 and so on and that's going to carry on until 2023 when we should receive records from the year 2003 and we'll be at that 20 year margin so material from the Thatcher years will be released a great deal more quickly than it would have otherwise have been which means of course boom time for contemporary historians. In conclusion, for anyone researching a political figure, we've seen how the rich primary sources at the National Archives can... We've seen how rich they can be. And it should be pointed out, um, it's important to investigate personal papers held by other institutions as well, so that the widest scope of a person's life is covered, not just the parts which coincide with their activity in government. It's also vital to carry out secondary reading before you plunge into the raw materials of history, in other words, the archives. I think you'd agree that the Prime Minister's office records in particular are fascinating, as the comments written in the Prime Minister's hand, the marginalia, can be very revealing about a PM's reactions to memoranda and letters, giving insights into their approach to the job, their personal style and aspects of their personality, reflecting the human side to national leaders who are often under great pressure. When you see the handwritten comments of Prime Ministers, you are connected with the person and how they are feeling at that moment in time. These documents bring a fresh dimension to the study of the Prime Minister's role. Referring to my era of research, 1945 onwards, some Prime Ministers are prolific in their handwritten notes, Others, less so. Clement Attlee, um, for example, um, was rather sparing with his, but nonetheless, they can be telling. Churchill's memos tend to be, um, tend to be typed, but his, his wartime memos are, of course, particularly punchy. Macmillan wrote some uh, pointed comments in his own hand. I haven't seen many notes in the margin from Edward Heath. Um, but Harold Wilson, James Callaghan and, of course, Margaret Thatcher are all prolific scribblers. But, of course, it's not just about the handwritten comments. Typed memos and letters are very important as well. And for other cabinet ministers, you'd need to investigate the departmental files, for example, the Ministry of Defence, the Foreign and Commonwealth Office and the Home Office, etc., and uh, that brings me to the end. That's where I'm going to stop. Thank you. This talk was recorded on the 15th of January 2013 at the National Archives, Kew. The talk was sponsored by the Friends of the National Archives. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives, all rights reserved.